the paradox here is you don't actually fix poverty by trying to fix the visible signs of poverty. If anything, you create more dependence. Instead, you try to fix, you fix poverty by focusing on creating prosperity, something entirely different. My guest today is Ifozo Ojamo. For years, governments and charities in emerging markets have tried to alleviate poverty by providing free health care, clean drinking water, and building schools. The results have been less than impressive. In fact, scores of countries like Burundi, Gambia, and Malawi are worse off. On the other hand, countries like South Korea, Japan, and Taiwan are prosperous nations today, despite a history of wars and unrest. The difference is market-creating innovations. Ifoza Ojama was born in Nigeria and came to the United States as a student on a scholarship. He graduated from Vanderbilt University with a degree in computer engineering and later went on to get an MBA from Harvard Business School. After graduating from Harvard Business, he worked with world-renowned innovation expert Dr. Clayton Christensen and co-authored The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. I recently sat down with Ifosa to discuss how he goes about helping entrepreneurs create new markets and how to identify opportunities that have enormous potential for growth. Efoso Jamo, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. And we just spoke a few, I think it was a week or so ago. After speaking with you, there was just so many questions I had. I started to read your book, and I think it's really amazing, exciting stuff that, that you're doing now. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. It's good to be here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. All right, man. So let's start from the beginning. How does Efosa come from... Nigeria, end up in the United States on a scholarship, gets into the most prestigious school in the country, and then partners and co-authors a book with a legend professor, Clay Christensen. What did you do to get so lucky? Oh, man, absolutely nothing. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, it's by the grace of God. That's sort of the short answer. Um, I, I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to come to the U.S. Uh, when I was really young, uh, 16. Uh, without that scholarship, you know, wouldn't have been able to afford college here. And, you know, I came, I, I would think like many uh, people from, you know, lower income countries. I came uh, with no intentions of ever going back or ever really uh, doing anything connected to, to Nigeria. Um, I came for the American dream, right? Like, like most people move to this country to, to get a piece of the American dream. Um, you know, I graduated college. I, I got a job as an engineer. I was working and life was good. Uh, bought a house, bought a car. Uh, but then in 2008, I stumbled upon some books on development, poverty, um, and it just changed the trajectory of my life. Uh, I would, I would, you know, at the time I had a, uh, I had a full-time job, but I'd find myself staying up till two, three in the morning, reading these books. And then I'd have to wake up, go to work the following day. That's when I knew something was going on. Cause you know, I told you I studied engineering in college and as an engineer, you don't have to read a lot, uh, which was part of the reason I did it. Cause I'm a really slow reader. Um, anyways, cut the long story short. I said, I need to do something about this. Um, 
It was after I read the, the third book. I read about this 10-year-old girl who had to wake up every morning, 3 a.m., walk miles, fetch firewood, and, and take it to the market to sell. And I just knew I had to respond. I, I didn't know exactly how, but I said, I want to do something about this. Um, I was fortunate to start a nonprofit organization. We did some work in some communities in Nigeria, but some of the projects we were working on, building wells and funding some education initiatives, just didn't have the kind of impact that I wanted. And so I, I thought, you know, I want to get some more education. Um, I happened to apply to business school and then got into Harvard. Um, and that's where I met Clay. And I got to tell you, Clay, that man was, um, you know, it was hard for you to meet him and have your life be the same. So this is, let me just, let me just for our listeners, this is Professor Clayton Christensen, who was, uh, I don't know, the master of innovative, the innovator's dilemma. He was coming up with all sorts of new thinking on how companies compete in the marketplace, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, he built his career on, um, a, you know, building and developing these innovation theories that could help managers make better decisions. Um, and he, he was so brilliant and so humble uh, and so kind that when I met him, I took his class at, at business school, um, I just wanted to be connected to him. I wanted to stay as close to him as 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 as, as long for as long as I could, uh, for as long as he would let me. Uh, thankfully, he 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 thought I was all right. He, um, but you know that's more more about him, less about me. Um, he 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 agreed to have me on as a researcher. Um, and so after I graduated from business school, I worked with Clay, uh, Professor Christensen. Uh, really up until he he passed away January 2020. Um, and through the course of our work, we we, we, were, we were fortunate to publish The Prosperity Paradox, um, which is really a book about innovation and how that can create this transformative impact in countries uh, when they do it right. Okay, man. So let, let, let me just back up a second. What were you doing? What were your parents doing in Nigeria when you're a little kid, when little Ifosa's running around the field playing soccer, what are your parents doing? Because I'm picturing like Africa, you're living in a hut in the dirt floor with, I don't know, with goats. Tell me how off yeah, I am. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's that's definitely not um, not the, not the Africa I grew up in. It. Uh, we lived in Lagos, uh, which is one of the biggest cities in the world, actually. Uh, certainly the biggest in in, in Africa, uh, 20 plus million people. Um, I don't really know how many people live there, but um, those are some of the estimates. Uh, my mom, uh, you know, started out as an optometrist and then went to business school, got an MBA, and she worked as a banker. Uh, my dad uh, was a civil, is a civil engineer, um, and and so he just he built stuff, roads and homes and you know um yeah just construction so he built things um so, you, so, so, your, I, so your family was well off right they were they were the upper class well that's a tough that's a very tough uh question because um we weren't poor but we weren't well off right so um <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tough question because if if major things happen to us right major things like one of us 
one of us got really sick or um, one of us needed to come to the U.S. for some kind of like healthcare uh, uh, access um, uh, or education, for instance, um, you know, I said I couldn't have come to the U.S. without a scholarship. Many of my friends um, who I went to school with, they they could come to the U.S. or the U.K. Those are sort of the two uh, most popular spots without, you know, without needing scholarships, right? Um, they, they Their parents were really well off. And so we were in this interesting place um, where as long as no major emergencies happened, which is how most people live in many poor countries, uh, you'd sort of be okay. But the minute one accident happens, uh, if my dad passed away, if my mom passed away, um, we we would have been we would have been screwed really really badly, um, and and so it's it's tough to say we were well off, um, but I would say we were certainly not poor, right? I mean I had three square meals a day, um, um, you know I I had access to education, a good education. Um, had a loving family, loving home. So we were okay. Um, but then perhaps because of what I know now, um, and just in my, as I've, as I've grown older, I'm like, you know, we were one accident away from, from things getting really rough. Yeah, you know, it's like so many people in this country also, it's they're one paycheck away from being evicted or falling behind on their debt. It just takes one paycheck and life changes, you know, it sounds yeah. like you, you had all that, but one little, one little bump in the road would have been pretty severe. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, which, which makes life really difficult, right? When you think about it from a, a risk-taking standpoint, I mean, you know, you think about uh, there are reports that say Nigerians are, are the most educated immigrants in the United States. Um, and you, you know, you survey the land and then, and, and think about many Nigerians, um, you know, doctors, engineers, lawyers, uh, many of them would go to, you know, I, I had several in, in business school with me in my class, uh, even though I think at the time there was, uh, there were roughly 900 in my class, um, what's uh, maybe 5%, 5, 6% were black. And then uh, there were probably of the, of the black uh, folks in my class, maybe thirty or so percent were Nigerians. Um, so I mean, Nigerians, we take education really seriously, um, which is good. But when you think about innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, you really have to think outside the box. You you have to create something um, that adds a ton of value to people's lives, and in doing that. You know, that's some risk you got to take. Um, and so it makes taking risks really hard uh, when you're one accident away from. Right, right, right. You know, disaster. OK, so yeah. so you go to college, you get an undergrad degree or you get a you major in, I think, computer engineering, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're doing all that kind of exciting stuff, programming and all. I don't know how people do that, but OK, you're doing all that. Anyway, you go to Harvard Business School. You, by the grace of God, you not only get into Professor Christensen's class, you become buds with him. He co-authors a book with you. And 
you have a perspective of seeing prosperity and poverty in Nigeria, in emerging markets, in, in, I don't know if we call them third world countries, I don't know what the politically correct thing is, but countries that are really disadvantaged. And you're mm-hmm. living here in America in the top 1% of Ivy League schools in the, probably the top business school in the world. What are you seeing that's, that's really like so different that you could say, holy smokes, this is what we have here and this is what we have there. And now I know why American businesses, entrepreneurs are doing so well. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first thing um, I would say, Charles, is, is, is really uh, perspective or, or, your, your, or a paradigm shift. Um, you know, people talk a lot about the mind um, and how important it is. You have to believe you can do something before you, you do it and so on. Um, it's somewhere in that space in that um, when I left Nigeria, you know, 20 some odd years ago now, I did not believe that country, the continent of uh, Africa, may other emerging economies could ever prosper. I just didn't believe it. I got to America. Um, I saw prosperity all around me. There's still a lot of poverty here, but I mean, <laughs> this is the richest country in the world, um, you know, bar none. Um, and there was this sort of belief that no, no, prosperity is in our DNA. It's sort of like we can prosper. Now, what's interesting about that is that belief is infectious. Um, it affects everybody who comes in contact with it. Um, I, I came to America, and pretty soon after, I believed that I could get into Harvard Business School. I believed that I could work with one of the greatest professors, you know, management professors that that has ever lived, right? Back in Nigeria, I I don't know that I would have, I would have shot that high or believed that. What's that mindset? Like you're you're telling, I I totally get what you're saying because I was born here and I was born in, in a working class neighborhood and I saw a friend of mine across the street from me, literally across the street, his father was a shop teacher and he became head of trading at a major bank. His brother went into the Merchant Marines. Down the block from me was a truck driver's son who became an attorney. So I'm with you. I, it's like expected. Like, I can do that. It, it is, there's no yeah. barrier. What's the mindset in an emerging market? Yeah. I mean, you know, people in emerging markets are some of the hardest working people in the world. I mean, just in terms of what you got to do to stay alive. Right, right. Um, and folks work hard in America, but you know, it's they, they, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of squeeze in emerging market, not a lot of juice. Um, now, you just talked about you saw someone across the street, father truck driver, you know, became an attorney, you know, had a trading at a bank, and so on. In many emerging markets, we don't see those things. All we see is people waking up every day and struggling, 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 and they rarely, they rarely make it. Now, what we do see, though, are people who um, cheat the system, uh, and then they make it, right? So whether you're a public official and you embezzle some money, or whether you are a, a big business person and you 
um, you, you know, you, you get deals with the government and there's some rent seeking going on. Um, we see that. Now, the thing about that is what people see, they often believe. And so when you see that in your mind, that becomes the best path or the quickest path to prosperity. And so it's really hard to convince someone, oh, just wake up, work hard, put in your application and you'll make it. It's really hard to do that in emerging markets. When every day, when they look around, they see other people making it through other means. Um, and so that became, begins to define the culture of the region. Now, the beauty about that is culture is not a static thing. It is malleable, it changes, it, it shifts. Um, there was a time in America where a majority of people believed similar things. They believed the only way or the best way to prosper was through corrupt means. Um, and we write about some of this in our book, The Prosperity Paradox, right? Um, corruption was at, 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 a, at, at a height in, in government. Um, you know, big businesses cared little about their customers. So you're talking about the late late eighteen late eighteen hundreds, yeah, early nineteen. Tammany Hall. And, and, right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. Um, but things began to shift, um, and they began to shift uh, as markets, new markets were created. And here's the thing about when you create a new market that serves many uh, many people. Uh, this phenomenon happens. We, in our book, we call it market creating innovations. Um, these are innovations that make products and services more affordable so many, many more people in society can get access to them. A few things happen when you do that. The first, people have access to these new products and so their lives would become better, whether it's a car, whether it's uh, clothing, whether it's housing, whatever it is, right? Their lives become better because now they have more access. Because you're serving a vast majority of people who historically did not have access, you as the entrepreneur, as the CEO, you have to create many new jobs. You have to create jobs so that people can make the product, market the product, service the product, sell it, and so on and so forth. As you create these jobs to provide an income for people, those people now have more money to spend and more money to take care of their families with. But they also have more money to pay, like taxes, and 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 um, so the government can improve the way it takes care of um, folks in the country, the, the institutions, if you will, right? The court systems, um, the uh, the institutions that manage our transportation networks, energy, and so on and so forth. And so you see that happening as a result. You have more money to spend on infrastructure. Um, how do we fund infrastructure? It's just, I mean, taxes. I mean, whether it's a toll, whether it's a tire tax, a gas tax, you, you have money for infrastructure. Um, and this is sort of the last thing that's quite critical. When more people begin to pay into the system, they begin to, they, they begin to demand more from the government. And so it's really hard for me to go to, say, the Nigerian government and demand something from the government when, I mean, I, I haven't paid taxes. I, I, don't know, I don't even know how to pay taxes. But in America, I mean, if, if you know, there's trees around my 
my property, if a tree falls on my home or my car, I better believe I'm calling my governor saying, hey, you better come take care of this. Why am I paying taxes? Um, and you're not taking care of, you know, of this, right. this so, public. So, so there's a type of ownership and reciprocity. I pay you, you have to take care of me. So in third world countries or emerging countries, there's, yeah. you don't feel that because there isn't that. There isn't that reciprocity. They, you don't, you're not paying into a system and no. they're not giving, in fact, they're stealing in most cases. Yes, yes, yes. It, it's, it's, it's huge, right? And so whenever you hear about, you know, Nigeria, Kenya, Bangladesh, India, all these countries struggling, um, it's important to uh, not just uh, demonize those in power, um, because I think that is sort of the the sort of visceral reaction. Uh, it's a reaction I I have um, as I worked with Professor Christensen, and I began to think about systems and how they work and understand the process by which we can create prosperity. We see the role that innovation and entrepreneurs play, um, the role that creating new markets uh, play, and not just to make you know, the wealthy, wealthier, or to, you know, the, the make people richer. No, 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 no. Markets are incredibly important so that um, these other benefits, uh, are, you know, markets are incredibly important because of these other benefits. Right. right? So it's, it's, Jobs, it's, the whole exo, you know. it's the whole ecosystem. So I create, I, create, I create a business downtown and the my workers coming who get off the train and buy lunch or a coffee that's basically me in my entrepreneurship that yeah they're the recipients thereof so it's like dropping a pebble in a pond and those ripples continue to go absolutely i mean i mean you 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 you've been around long enough to see parts of america um you know in the heyday and and maybe not so heyday today. Um, so if, if we go to Rust Belt America, for example, uh, what happened, right? I mean, I think we can we can come up with many, uh, the thesis of, of what led to sort of the demise in many of these uh, uh, cities. But at the core of it is, at one point, there was a market that existed there. Jobs were created for a ton of people, whether it was steel, whether it was, you know, Rochester, Kodak, um, Xerox, uh, whether it was Detroit and, and, and the auto industry, uh, it doesn't matter what it was. At one point, there was a thriving market. Jobs were provided for a lot of people. Those people, they did what you just said, went down to the coffee shop. They did this, paid taxes, taxes funded the roads, the schools, and so on. And then, boom industry starts to go out. You outsource or you move or you do whatever you do. Again, not saying good or bad, you know, you say globalization. This, but you're basically saying one, one factor changes, which upsets the whole yeah. entire apple cart. And exactly. it's a daisy chain event. Exactly. And the market leaves. And now you have a situation where many of these cities are struggling. Yeah, but many of these cities also reinvented themselves, you know, that 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 auto worker is no longer an auto worker. He became a computer engineer, and now might move to Silicon Valley or had a uh, startup. Or see, I think that's the dynamic the dynamic nature 
of, and I think you summed it up really well in the beginning, it's that it's in our DNA that right. uh, just simply because you were born a, you know, you were born working in, you weren't born working anywhere, but you're working in a hardware store on Monday, that does not mean you can't be coming up with invention or starting up a business tomorrow. It's that, no, that and you see your stupid neighbor across the street or your dumb brother-in-law making tons of money doing X, you say, why hell, why can't I do that? Yeah, and that's that's what Schumpeter uh, calls creative destruction. Uh, in fact, that is the cycle of capitalism and and prosperity. In fact, you 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 can't uh, thrive as an individual, as a city, as a country, if you don't go through that creative destruction, uh, which essentially means today, here's how we get the bulk of our revenues. We make textiles. I mean, that was a time when we made a bunch of clothes in America. I mean, that was, that was a time when we did that. Um, today, we make Boeing 777s, right? Wide-bodied aircraft, um, semiconductors, and, you know, so the, the thing that's, that's constant is that creative destruction. It's the idea that, look, what you're doing today, the capabilities you're building um, will probably not serve you tomorrow. You need to always be on the lookout um, because somebody else will come do that and, you need to keep skilling up so that you can improve. Yeah, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, I don't know what percent, I think it was 50 or 60% of America was agrarian. They were farmers. Yes. And, you know, if you said, well, I'm going to put all the farmers out of business, what are you crazy? How's this country going to last without farm? Boom. Uh, you know, the automobile comes, Henry Ford. It just it just continues. And, and the Rust Belt doesn't work anymore. It's cheaper to manufacture outside. So we become... An amazing, innovative country with Googles and Facebook starting up in dorm rooms. So I got gotcha. you. So I got gotcha you for that sense. You hear that? That's what turkeys sound like. You know what else sounds like turkeys? This. There's a lot of value there. How do you see that? Yeah, you really have to break it up into the sections of healthcare. Wall Street talking heads with no chance of helping you make big money in stocks. Why? Because they can't. According to Standard & Poor's, 92% of active fund managers underperform their benchmark. 92%. 92%. And you know who suffers for it? Millions of Main Street Americans just like you. That's why Charles Mizrahi is on a mission. A mission to help 1 million Americans take back their financial future in a way that's easy to use and profitable. And with nearly 100,000 people already on their way, you could be next. So don't listen to the turkeys. Instead, Listen to how America's number one alpha investor, Charles Mizrahi, could help you make more money in two weeks than most investors make in two years. To see how, go to investingpatriots.com. That's investingpatriots, all one word, dot com. I guarantee you'll be glad you did. Why isn't this happening? in these emerging markets, or you're going to be telling me it is happening, but tell me why, from my perspective, Africa is one of the richest, I think it is the richest continent in terms of natural resources, right? Yeah. There's diamonds, there's oil, there's gold, there's everything. There's fertile land, and it's a huge continent. Yeah. Why, what's happening that this is not Silicon Valley on steroids? Yeah, so, um, 
I would say three three reasons um, I, I would give you. I'm sure there are more. Uh, the first is uh, it is happening, but not at the scale we need um, it to happen. And so, you know, when you go to different hubs on the continent, you go to Cairo, uh, you go to Lagos, you go to Nairobi, Cape Town, you are beginning to see innovations spring up um, that can be like world class. As a company called Flutterwave, that's a fintech company that's, you know, valued at over a billion dollars. Um, so Nigerian American company. There's another company called M Pharma. Uh, it's sort of in the in the mobile health space, right? Um, raised upwards of 50, 60 million dollars, um, and you know, startup uh, company. It's happening, but it's not happening at scale. Why? Um, why? Tell me why. Now, 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 why? Big. One of the biggest reasons is. Um, Many of these countries are looked at as, 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 as poor, right? And poverty, uh, unfortunately, poverty is looked at as a problem that professionals have to come in and solve. And so when you go to a poor country, right, the first thing you see is the lack, the lack of infrastructure, lack of schools, lack of hospitals, and so on. As a development professional coming from America, France, you know, uh, Netherlands, you, you're coming from a place where you don't see that lack. You see a lot of bounty, plenty. And, and so instantly, you know what the problem is, or you tell yourself you do. We need to build schools. We need to build hospitals. We need to build roads. We need to build all these things because that's where the problem is. But you and I just talked about the, the mechanism that makes that work, the mechanism that makes the road work, that makes the schools work, the hospitals, it's that market. And that market is missing, that innovation is missing. So a lot of the funding, a lot of the professionals, uh, they want to push resources onto these countries. Um, and they have the airwaves, right? You have the United Nations, the World Bank, very big anti-poverty programs. Now, I think they're, they're doing the best they can, but it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you don't uh, take into consideration that mechanism we talked about, innovation, entrepreneurship, I don't care how many roads you build in, in whatever countries, it's not going to work. Right, so so they're, they're solving a problem that really is a symptom. It's, it's not symptom. really the core. So they're solving, right. So, okay. So, so it's like, it's like, the bath keep the bathtub is overflowing, and instead of closing the faucet, you're mopping the floors. That's I couldn't have said it better. All right, and you went and, and, you went to, and you went to Harvard Business School. I went to one year Brooklyn College, so I got my can money. Can you believe work. that? Can you believe that? All that money. I just <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so so let me ask you this, man. Let me ask you this. You take a country, right? Two countries, more or less, at the same time. Uh, you have Jamaica, and you have Singapore. Jamaica's. GDP, they opted to go to farming. Singapore decided a totally different path. Singapore's GDP is multiples of Jamaica's. Now, it's not that Jamaicans are dumb. They didn't take stupid pills. They're probably, they're just, assume all intelligence is average to, super, to above average throughout the world. There's really no stupid people, right? It's, it's, it's education no. that, okay. Israel. Israel, no natural resources. Now they're a startup nation. 
uh, it, 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 it enormous, enormous. No natural, the re natural resources, they're people. And the startup environment, which changed from a system of government, from socialism to more capitalism, which created or spurred this innovation. So now yeah. we're seeing these countries, Singapore, for example, and Jamaica, you just look over and you say, how the heck did they choose that? Or you look at Israel, you look at the Arab countries around that, they didn't choose the innovation that Israel chose. They chose oil income. How do you change the mindset of these countries to say, gosh, look what, look what my neighbor's doing. My dumb neighbor across the street, their GDP soaring. They don't have any problems of anyone coming there to build schools for them. They're self-sufficient and they're exporting. What is that catalyst for that change? I mean, it's a process, right? Um, it's important to know Singapore did not get here overnight. So I think that's that's that one we have to appreciate the long arduous journey. And Singapore is actually an anomaly in the sense that there are the countries that I can uh, that 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 have achieved Singapore level of prosperity in the time frame that Singapore did. I can count on on, on one finger. Yeah, but that's because right? they had a phenomenal leader, right? So that that, that was an exceptional. And by the way, he went ahead and he basically cloned good ideas from other countries. Yes. You know, he, yes, it, it was, you know so, so, okay. So, 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 so I think it's important that we appreciate that, you know, the, these are anomalies the, 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 and, and it's a, it's a process. Um, the, the, the second thing is, um, <laughs> um, the mechanism doesn't change, right? It's how productive are my people in creating goods and services that a bunch of other people need. If you can answer that question, and connect it to the capabilities you have around you, Jamaica, Nigeria, wherever, you can begin that. Okay, um, okay. So so, so, so let, me, let me ask you this question, man. Let me ask you a question. You, yeah. you went to the best business school probably in the world. You know a lot of smart people. And you probably know a lot of people that started businesses, great entrepreneurs, great captains of industry. You took 10 of them and you went back to a village in Nigeria. Five years from now, would I see Silicon Valley, I'm just using that example, would I see Silicon Valley 3.0? Probably not. Tell me um, why. Tell me why. But, well, because it didn't, it, it, Silicon Valley 1.0 didn't get created in five years. Maybe 25 years, you could see Silicon Valley 3.0, right? Um, whatever that becomes. Um, but I, would, I wouldn't even necessarily frame it that way. I would frame it as, um, would you see prosperity? And prosperity doesn't necessarily mean people have a ton of money in their bank account. Prosperity equates to hope. It equates to people not having to leave their countries or the regions just, just for better opportunity. I mean, they still leave if they want to. I mean, you got Canadians in America, you got, uh, the, you know, English folks in America. So they leave if they want to, but not just for prosperity. And I think when you can create that in a region, then I think that's when you know that region is on its path to prosperity. In terms of how you do that, what you do exactly, and that's where it really depends. It depends on the capabilities of the region. Um, and capabilities are made up of really three things, right? It's your resources. So let's take stock. What do we have access to? Your processes. Uh, so what processes are is the ways you figured out how to work together to use your resources. 
different countries are at different levels when it comes to how efficiently they use their resources. And the last is the priorities. What do people in that country want to prioritize? Um, if we look at China and India, we see a stark difference, right? China prioritizes economic growth almost at um, the expense of a bunch of other things. India prioritizes sort of its democracy in a way and says, we're going we're gonna to try to practice this democracy, even though we're not a wealthy country, we'll prioritize that. And so you want to go build a plant in India and you've got your plant on my land and I'm a poor farmer, I can probably take you to court and, and delay uh, the construction of that plant. China, if it's going to benefit the region, create economic growth, we'll figure something out. I mean, we'll expedite okay. that thing. So, so let me ask you a question. I, yeah. I got you. I totally, that's a, that's a good example. China and India is a, is a really good example. When the government gets behind and just think what, you know, I remember uh, looking at, I was in um, Shanghai a few years ago, and they have the view from a hotel of what it looked like just in the 80s. Not a, <laughs> not a lifetime ago to now. It's like, holy smokes. This is like a 30-year period. It's just absolutely staggering the way the way this that economy just, just flourished from an agrarian society to a highly productive one in so many, so many different ways. But here's my question to you. You are here close to 20 some odd years. You went to an elite school. You studied with elite professors. You caught the American germ of entrepreneurship and you can do it in this. Could you have been IFOSA at 40 years old? I'm assuming you're 40 or thereabouts. Could you become IFOSA in Nigeria? Could you have, your trajectory, could that ever have been the same? You're a smart guy. Your parents, you had all the same things, but you changed one thing in your life. You came here at 16 years old. And your life just took, it went into the stratosphere as compared to if you would have stayed in Nigeria. That's my opinion. Do you agree with that or disagree? Well, I mean, I, I agree. Um, and, and it's not even a, I mean, with my story, it's anecdotal, right? Uh, there, there, are, there are studies and papers that have been written on, you know, you take a, a, a person from a middle, low-income country, you put them in the U.S., doing the same thing actually they could be a barber in their country they come here cutting right. hair you know and 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 they they make multiples right so as you know there, there's papers that talk about this so i mean statistically economically speaking and like empirically speaking is what i mean it's it's uh, you know that that's that's the case um it's because the system here by and large i mean there are issues with it but by and large works. The systems in many other countries don't work. And it's really, really hard to get that system going. The system requires multiple stakeholders. Okay. You're, you're, I agree with you. I agree. So for me to start a business tomorrow, I go online, I pay the fee, I become an LLC. And in three seconds later, I'm on GoDaddy, buying a domain, buying a website, Get a I'm in business tomorrow morning. I get a bank account, get a tax ID. In literally 24 hours, I could be in business. That's not the case in a lot of these countries. Correct? It's not, it's not, it's not the case. And, and, and 
And what you've actually described is really just the beginning. It's the surface. Where are you going to find workers? Where are you going to find suppliers? Where are you going to find uh, customers who understand the product? Where are you going to find distribution, logistics, and so on? You know, so the system is set up, right, to advance innovation and the creation of markets. Now, it doesn't mean it's not possible. In many emerging economies, they're at a different phase. So you go back 100 years, 150 years in America, you could not just go to GoDaddy, go on the website. I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious there, but the point is you could not just start a business. Um, you could not just send goods uh, from New York to uh, Missouri or something. We were in the, in, the, in the market creation phase. We were building those systems. Now we have those systems, we see they work, we see the benefits, um, and it's hard to go back. What I'm trying to do is encourage people in emerging markets and, and many other parts of this country where things may not work as well and say, there's hope if we build the system. But here's my point. If you're in these emerging markets, you just have to look to your right and left. Or even look to the United States or look to China or look to Singapore or look to Israel, look to these countries. Why don't we model why don't we model ourselves off? If you and I became the kings of one country in Africa and we had all of these things, I would think the first thing, and I don't have the Harvard Business Education, so you got to correct me on this one. I would start off with creating a capitalist system with a fair and equitable taxation where I attract wealthy people to invest in opportunities using the labor force that's around me. That's, that's my simple, non-educated way of doing things. Yeah, Why, is, is that hard? It is, it's very hard. Tell me it's where I'm missing very, it. Where am I missing it? It's very hard. You see, you are one person um, and you're talking about, it's not impossible, it's just very hard. So, um, you know, I just talked about capabilities. There are things that you can do as Charles, as the president or the king or whatever of a country. And then there are things the country is set up to do. There are capabilities of a country. So it's very hard for you to go and become a leader of a country, a country that has existed a certain way over decades, um, a country that has built a certain level of culture and comfort with the way things work, um, and then you say, hey guys, here's what we're now gonna do. Just trust me. When a majority of people do not trust the folks that sit in your position, they don't know you. Right. They don't know who you are. As far as they're concerned, you're just like the, 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 the last guy. Everybody who goes in power promises no more corruption, no more this, we're gonna build this. So it's, it's, not, it's not that easy. So I, um, I made a lot of assumptions that that really are not so. For example, like in Arab countries, it's a book now, come tomorrow, tomorrow, we'll do it, tomorrow, always delay. And I remember there's a commercial years ago uh, um, in Jamaica, like uh, just driving slow and they stop at a cow passing and instead of beeping, it's like, just take your time, it's Jamaican time. Like, it, it's not like, let's get here, it's getting up, yeah, see in an hour or two, it, there, there's no rush for, for deadline, there's no movement. It's just a culture of people who have not become comfortable, but this is the way they were brought up and their whole existence is around this. And I totally get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. But here's what I'm not getting. If I'm in this culture, I'm in this environment, and I'm and you're right, you know, right, I have to agree with you. 
emerging markets, these people in terms of work, what we consider work, work 50 times more than me. Well, well, you know, I sit by a desk and I drink a cup of coffee and I say, well, I had a tough day. Digging ditches is a tough day. Carrying 50 pounds of water in, in jugs three miles, that's, yes. that's work. I, I don't do work. Yeah. So if I just looked and I just looked around me and I just studied these other countries or these, uh, wouldn't I just come to a conclusion that, gosh, let me change? Yeah, but you see, we're talking about a system. Um, you can change, but if the system is not designed to um, to incentivize you, uh, people work based on incentives, right. Right? right? If the system is not designed to to um, as a word I'm looking for, I can't find. Um, but if if the system's not designed to, to to give you sort of a benefit for your work, then you can change all you want, and change is costly, but you will not reap a reward. I just tell you, I want you to tell the story. I forgot where I heard it on one of the one of your presentations about your sister who goes to court mm. and all the payoffs involved. Where he, she was doing the right thing, she couldn't believe it. Just, just share that with us. Yeah, it was it was my the, my TED talk actually. I started out with explaining how somebody had come into broken into my sister's office at the university where she teaches and stole her like laptop and a couple other things found the person took him to the hospital um, um, no, not hospital not post office the police station and um <laughs> and when they get there the police officers are saying look we can't do anything un until you pay us she's like and that's your job is to i just brought you somebody who stole my stuff you know an alleged criminal and you're telling me I gotta pay a little bribe so you can you can do your job. Yeah, you know, so this isn't asking for a bribe so they do something illegal, asking for a bribe. This is doing a job. And so it's hard when you live in that system, Charles, to you know, what does my sister want to change that will change the system, right? I mean, she's teaching, she's doing her best, but it's you know, you wake up every day, a system like that, it beats you up. It really does. Um, but I think where I want to leave people is even in the midst of that, there is hope. Um, a lot of the work I've done, books I've read, I'm looking around for this particular book on uh, the Industrial Revolution. And it just when you go back and read where we've come from and you read the evolution of development and prosperity, what you find is we are not coming from a place that is significantly dissimilar. We're coming from a place that's quite similar, but people built systems. Now, at the time, we did not have other countries we could compare with where, you know, where the comparison was really stark, right? You can argue, oh, the American government, they, the, the bureaucracy is, is, gets an eight out of 10 for efficiency, the Nigerian government, maybe you get a two out of 10. And that's very stark. You know, back in the day, maybe all of us were hanging around two, three, four out of 10. But I can say, because we came from there, it is possible for other countries to do the same. Hard work, but it's possible. Okay. I so truly you, believe that. you titled your book, The Prosperity Paradox. What's the paradox? You, you mentioned it earlier. Remember the analogy you gave um, 
uh, bath water um, uh, overflowing, and then you're mm -hmm. you're you're the trying small, to mop it up the floor. Yeah. So you the, the paradox here is you don't actually fix poverty by trying to fix the visible signs of poverty. If anything, you create more dependence. Instead, you try to fix, you fix poverty by focusing on creating prosperity, something entirely different. Um, Give me an example, make, make, that, make that real for me. Tell, tell me what that means in a real, in a real example. So, so real example, you take the continent of Africa, right? Economically speaking, the poorest parts of the world. 20 years ago, entrepreneur says, I wanna go sell inexpensive mobile phones to people. You gotta understand, 20 years ago, we didn't have broadband the way we do today. We didn't have, I mean, mobile phones were still relatively new technologies back then, no smartphones, certainly. People said, you're crazy. Corruption, no infrastructure, education, healthcare, uh, malaria. We gotta fix all these other problems. Let's fix the poverty before you even start talking about selling mobile phones. That's a luxury. Mo Ibrahim, entrepreneur says, nah, I will create a market for this product because this creates value for people. Cut the long story short, he invests, makes it affordable to many people. Today, close to 1 billion subscriptions on the continent, economic value of 200 or so billion dollars. He's created two to 3 million jobs, provides annual revenues of 10, 20 billion dollars to different governments. That's the process, the, 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 well, what we call, that's the solution to the prosperity paradox. If he went in, oh, let me fix the road, let me get water, let me do this, he would still be working on all that. Instead, he takes an entirely different approach, creates a market for a product that people would value, and now has created all this prosperity in that sector, right? Now, what I'm arguing is, what if we did something similar for a bunch of other products and services? I think we could, we could. Such as what, such as what, give me an example. Healthcare, housing, um, I mean, food, <laughs> the average household in many African countries spends over half their income on food, uh, insurance, access to insurance. Now we would have to change the business model, um, uh, of, of how we make these products and sell these products. But if we, if we do that, then we create jobs. Then we create that mechanism we were talking about earlier, uh, where people can go down to the coffee shop and, and create that ripple effect. That's what we do. If we keep trying to fix poverty by building schools and building wells and all these things, I mean, we're going to be doing it for a long time. We'll be doing Instead, it forever. We'll be doing it forever. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so, 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 tell me what you're doing. You're, you're doing. I saw that you have workshops. You're, you're actually creating, or, or we're not creating. I would say you're, you're really nurturing entrepreneurs in these countries. Well, that's 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 my hope. Um, after the book came out, we got a lot of requests from people who wanted to. I don't know how to explain it. They wanted to touch the material. They wanted they wanted more, um, and so uh, we're in a partnership with uh, MIT, uh, the Legatum Center uh, for Development and Entrepreneurship, um, we are building a market creating innovation boot camp. And the whole idea is to empower 
innovators uh, in emerging markets with these principles um, and really connect them into a community uh, where they can get the kind of support so that they can build market creating innovations. Right, uh, that's that's what we want to do. We're, we're going to launch in a few months, uh, probably end of June. Uh, we'll launch this in Rwanda. We'll do it in seven countries this year, and we're, we're you know we're hoping to scale this out. If we can get people to start thinking differently, empower them with the necessary skills uh, that let them know you can create a new market um, that can begin to help your country prosper, uh, then I think you know there's hope. I really do believe there's hope. So you're going to start with one guy, one place, one village, and theoretically, and just keep multiplying that and connecting them with networks of each other, and it just mushrooms. That's, yeah, that's the beauty about the net network effects um, and, 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 and the unpredictability about creating a new, a new market, right? Um, you know, when I build a school, or whatever else, I can fairly predict what might happen. You know, if I build a road from here to there, I can predict, okay, two lane highway, 200 cars go every minute. You know, you can predict when you create a new market, you really can't predict what's going to happen. So you take the computing industry, you create the market for computers. People are like, oh, I should put a camera on this thing. And then somebody says, oh, I should create an app that connects people with this camera. And then people are making money, creating wealth through this new market you've created. Somebody says, oh, let me connect people to doctors. And so, you know, that's the beauty of a lot of market. So, so, you know, I love you that you brought that up. You look at the iPhone and you couldn't have Uber without the iPhone. And Uber is an app. It's just just a thought process of someone who said, you know what? Let's create, without putting any money into cars in this, it's just brilliant, but it would never have happened without broadband, without a smartphone, without an app store, without any of these things. And now it becomes exponential growth in terms of everything. Here's the thing, Charles. Now, imagine somebody said, sat you down and said, Charles, I want you to show me the impact this phone is going to have. I wouldn't have any idea. Zero idea. Show me. Right, because because you you've just put a camera, a little nice screen. You're telling me I'm going to spend seven hundred dollars on this phone. I can't eat. Um, I got to pay rent. I got to this, and and they say show me this thing, and and it's hard. So you know, you asked earlier why isn't this happening? Well, the acute signs of poverty. We're trying to fix those. If we change that thinking to more iPhone thinking, then you begin to see the Ubers happen. And man, that is when the floodgates of prosperity. Right. That's, 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 that's the flywheel. It just keeps. That's the flywheel. That's the flywheel. You know, it's so that's look, I'm on a mission. I'm on a mission to spread the message to as many people as possible to show that it is possible. Um, and, you know, I, I think I think it can happen because it happened for me. I mean, I left. I was like, there's no way. Now I do believe it is possible. Yeah. Wow. Phenomenal. So you, when is this starting up? You said this is a new project. Uh, you're gonna- yeah, it's a new project. Um, we're, we're starting out in, well, I, I'm thinking end of June. Um, we're working with a few partners. And so 
uh, we're look, you know, we're we're just managing dates and and and, and things like that now. But um, second half of this year for sure, we'll be very busy executing on these programs. And so very excited about wow. it. You know, I love to have you on the show a year from now when you have one of these networks up and running, where you have this young person in a village that created a I don't know, some type of healthcare product that now employs 300 people and created roads and jobs and that whole network effect of wealth. You know, that's just, uh, and all you need yeah. is one, you know, you start with one and that's really it, right? You know, uh, you don't need a zillion. No, you don't. That's the, that's the cool thing about it. You know, how many Henry Fords are there? Yeah. I'm right? just saying you need one I'm Steve a, Jobs, right? Just, just yeah, give me one exactly. Steve Jobs. Give me one Larry Page. Give me one yeah, Zuckerberg. Exactly. That's all. Exactly. So we're going to find those guys. We're going to empower those guys and they will create new markets that'll create prosperity the world over. Yeah. I don't think you're going to have to find them. I think they're going to come to you. You know, those kind of guys are going to want, you, you just need to get it up and running in my humble opinion. And you just get those one or two uh, pioneers and then everyone else will see what they're doing and just jump along. And, you know, I, I could, just, if look, if this takes place, if this is an example of, Everything that you learned from Professor Christensen and the whole, the whole way of building prosperity, this is just exponential growth. You know, it's hockey stick kind of growth. That's the hope. It won't take 50 years of doing, wow, that's great. Okay, man. Uh, so we definitely got to have you on. I tell you what, you call me three in the morning when you have your first millionaire, wherever it is, and we got to do a show. I want to have that person on. That sounds good. I'll be sure to do that. Oh, man, that's great. Okay, <laughs> thank you so much, Ifoso Ojomo. Thank you so much, man. This has been absolutely great. You've schooled me on so many things that I thought I knew, which I realized I, I, I just, I didn't even touch it. I didn't even really hit the surface. Because, you, you know, I, I just think more about it. It's, there were so many things like if there was no, if I lived in a community where there wasn't broadband, how would I be able to work? How would I be able to have a work at home, uh, stay work? Exactly. How would I be able to download things and, and, and just, you know, you go to a hotel and if you don't get that Wi-Fi password, you feel like you're back in the, you know, <laughs> you're back in the middle ages. You can't download yeah. things. It's, you know, it's, or you're on an airplane, you could just text. It's, you know, I, can, I can hear what you're saying, you know, but uh, absolutely phenomenal. Thank you so much for being on the show, man. God bless. And, and just continued, continued success. I'm rooting for you. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Charles. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.